You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policies, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling No Deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Solik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. And today, well, we're going to have a look at what's been happening over the weekend for almost everyone in the entire country, which is getting wet. Yes, it was pretty blustery here in London, but certainly much, much worse elsewhere further afield. Clean-up efforts now underway across the country. Heavy downpours, strong winds devastating some communities. The government's activated its emergency aid package to support people who've been badly hit by Storm Dennis. The so-called Bellwind scheme will apply to those affected in areas including Worcestershire and Herefordshire, where major incidents were declared yesterday. Now, that said, the storm is still causing risk of life today and criticisms mounting there hasn't really been enough investment in the places that need it. The Environment Secretary, George Eustace, insists the government measures are working. In the last five years, the flood infrastructure that we've put in place uh, has protected over 200,000 properties and other projects that we're working on now will protect another 100,000. You'll never be able to protect every single property, but the investments we've made mean that we are able to, to protect a significant number. All right, well, let's uh, dig into this then. I'm pleased to say we're joined by Adam Price, who's the leader of Plaid Cymru. Um, Adam, you've been at some of these sites. Tell us about what you've seen in Wales. Uh, yes, I'm in pont de at the moment, which is one of the uh, worst affected areas uh, here in, uh, in South Wales. And I've been uh, visiting uh, uh, business that's been affected and a lot of local residents. And, you know, heart-wrenching stories, really. Um, um, you know, what do you say to a family that, you know, has lost everything? And, uh, and then now, you know, many of them still in a state of shock, to be honest with you. Just starting to think about some of the practical repercussions. Uh, going back to the houses uh, for the first time in some instances. Uh, most of them, I would say, that I've spoken to, don't have insurance. Uh, so, you know, h- how do you cope in those those, uh, those circumstances? Well, and- well, Adam, let me pick up on that, because that's an interesting scenario where obviously there's an insurance issue, but there's also how to prevent this kind of thing happening. But but flood defences are a devolved function. They are they belong with the, the Welsh administration, I think, yeah. through the Natural Resources for Wales. Yeah. Tell to me about them. Have they spent enough on preparing Wales for this? 
Well, I, I think almost certainly not, because we're, we're seeing um, flooding emergencies like this uh, ha- happening on a regular basis. I've had them in my own uh, constituency in, in Carmarthenshire. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, I, I, I think it almost certainly is the case that we're not investing uh, at the scale that is necessary to the task. And so, you know, two things are happening. Flooding uh, emergencies. I mean, how many how many times have you covered uh, you know flooding these kind of flooding stories on, on on the program? They're happening more frequently. You know, insurers sometimes talk don't they about once in a hundred year uh, type events. Well, once in a century events are happening. You know, every few years, and it's also the scale. So just uh, of of the flooding disaster that we're talking about, and I think you know I use my word advisory because the last time there was a kind of uh, a mega flood of this uh, scale in uh, Pondicherry, where I'm, I'm, I'm stood now, in 1979. That's when a lot of the flooding defence infrastructure was created uh, as a result of that. Right. Well, the, the level of the river was 80 centimetres, yeah, above that in 1979. And so we clearly. Um, not prepared for, I think, the new reality um, of uh, the fact that floods. So, Adam, do you agree then with or, or Mike Drakeford um, of the uh, of the Welsh government? He's saying that all of the defence has succeeded. They had this three hundred and fifty million pounds flood and coastal defence budget, but now he's saying this is off the scale. Massively intensive incidents are increasing. Plans have to be put in place. This is your opposition in uh, in in the Welsh Assembly. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that we, we, we need, I think, an, a, 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 a rooted branch comprehensive review of uh, flooding policy because clearly it's not working at the moment. And uh, I think uh, the, the level of investment in the flooding infrastructure is one thing. I, I think also, you know, we need to be better at coordinating when these flooding emergencies happen. So many of the people that I talked to, for, for example, said, well, I didn't know who to call. You know, the, 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 obviously the local authorities uh, play an important role. Then you've got our version of the Environment Agency, Natural Resources Wales. Uh, the emergency services were doing heroic uh, work. But where was the single point of, of call on, uh, on the ground? And at the national level, you know, do we, uh, when something like this, which is a kind of almost, it, it, I think it, it, it does uh, represent a national emergency, where was the regional or the national kind of coordination to ensure that people, when they're affected in this terrible way, get the, the support uh, um, in the most coordinated uh, way as possible. And, then, but, but, and then third, thirdly, who's going to help these people? I haven't got insurance. Well, well, indeed, Alan, let me pick oh, up on know. that because that's really interesting. What you were saying there is maybe this is a national issue. Surely, I mean, this was a devolved power. Are you saying that something like dealing with floods and, and crises of this scale actually have to be handled in Westminster, have to be handled by London, and in fact, rather than being devolved to Wales. Uh, no, I don't. I, I don't. I think that would be a first of a leader of flight country, wouldn't you? No, no. I, I, when I talk about national, because I, I mean, I mean uh, the Welsh national uh, level, and, and the, the role that the Welsh government, I think, needs to play in coordinating, uh, particularly in a situation of year where I think the local authorities, because it was so widespread. They were, uh, uh, you know, easily overwhelmed by the the, uh, the challenge they, they were facing. So I think there's a role for the Welsh government. I think the the, the wider point that, that you possibly make, though, is, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to I don't want to sort of, uh, go back over Brexit ground here, but of course there there was this issue of the disaster relief fund that's available in the EU. Uh, I think that possibly we do need uh, at the at a UK level, um, uh, you know, a solidarity fund uh, as well when we are talking about a scale of emergency which is 
way beyond the resources of any of the devolved nations. I, I, you know, I think that it, that it is important that a that is uh, that, that, that there, there are some uh, additional resources which can uh, be called upon when a flooding emergency right. reaches reaches the scale that is beyond the uh, the level of, of any of the individual nations to cope with. And similarly, I think that would apply in some of the regions of England as well. So then if the Wales, Island. as you advocate, would one day become an independent country, how would it cope with this sort of threat, which, as you say, is likely to only become more and more frequent? Well, then, because we'd be much more economically successful, we close the prosperity gap that's been there for you know, for far too long for generations, and we'd be we'd be a, a economically uh, self-confident country that could put in the investment in our flood defence that actually we need in the 21st century. So, uh, you know, no worries on 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 that. But, score, but Adam, but, uh, that's yeah, that's I, a, that's I, an I, extraordinary I, thing to say that you 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 simply think Wales will be so successful it will be able to tackle that. I mean, people who might think of voting for you would say, well, hang on, we can't be sure because of global economics how how prosperous we'll be. Wouldn't it be better to be part of a larger whole, whether it's the UK or the EU, where the resources are there to deal with this kind of disaster? Well, you know, when, while we're in the UK, we need to have um, uh, we need to have a system which actually ref, re, reflects um, the, the financial constraints that a devolved nation work, work, works under. So you can't, at the same time, say, "Well, no, you can't have the economic tools and levers that are necessary for you to close your prosperity gap." And also, when a natural disaster hits, we're not going to give you extra help. So you can't have it both ways. If you, as an unionist, or if anyone as an unionist wants to uh, maintain the benefits of having an union, then be a proper unionist, be a good unionist, and actually uh, provide the assistance and the tools that are necessary. I, of course, have no illusions of the fact that ultimately... The only long-term sustainable answer to all of Wales's problems, including our inability to invest at a sufficient scale in our basic public infrastructure and our public services, the only long-term an- an- answer to that is for us to have the tools and levers to become a successful uh, economy in our own right, and we can only do that as an independent nation. Right. But, you know, we, we look, we have to deal with the situation on the ground now, uh, well, let's talk about that. The insurance issue is one that you, you mentioned earlier. H- how would the Welsh government, or how would you as a Welsh government, uh, take on that issue? Well, I, I think that um, we, we need to look at insurance reform. Uh, that is not that is a non-devolved uh, matter, so that's something that uh, I certainly would love to sit down with uh, the UK Prime Minister and, and talk about. Um, because we can't have a situation where increasing swathes of the country, and indeed all the countries in the United Kingdom, uh, either aren't able to uh, access uh, flooding insurance at all, or aren't able to access it at a level which isn't prohibitively expensive for people. So, so that, that that's an issue. And then, you know, are we getting into a situation where we either have to reform? Uh, the insurance uh, sector, or we need to provide an alternative to people in, in circumstances such as. But, but Adam, now you have a group of people who have not got insurance. You told us about them. Yeah. Should they and get we, some kind of direct they, grant now from the Welsh government? Is that how it has to work? They, they, I think they must get uh, a hardship support. And so, in the county uh, which my party uh, runs, where I which, which I represent, uh, when we were faced with a similar circumstance, then we did provide. 
a hardship fund uh, for individual residents and businesses that were in, in the, this circumstance that didn't have uh, flooding insurance. And at least it was be able to provide uh, some degree of help to people who are facing, you know, the immediate uh, uh, problem of how, how, how to get their business back up and running or how to, you know, restore uh, and get back into their, their, their property. And so the Welsh Government, I understand from the uh, news this morning, has promised it will give money to the local authorities in the, in the affected areas. Well, I would hope that at least some of that, that money Either directly mm. or indirectly would would uh, go into a hardship fund, so that those kind of those families that I met this morning that right. uh, were, were worried uh, will get the support they need. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight: athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen: the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. First of all, we've got to stick with the flooding story. The government spending £1.2 billion to build a supercomputer that can forecast weather and climate 18 times faster than current technology. And I suppose this sort of fits into the government's plan to use technology to uh, to develop the country. It comes, of course, as large swathes of the country battling severe flooding. Forecasters apparently this time were able to protect, predict storms Kara and Dennis six days in advance. So that is very much the score to beat. It also helped the government guide policy on hitting its target of net zero emissions by 2050. Now, do you remember when we were covering the fact that Dominic Cummings, senior advisor to the Prime Minister, of course, had advertised for weirdos, misfits, to come and work for him? And much speculation. I do. That How might did he actually... get on, Roger? Well, uh, well, if you believe what Labour is saying, he's found someone who certainly has, let's call them our ideas a little outre, um, and they're calling for the immediate sacking of the guy who they have said is someone whose controversial remarks about pregnancy, race and women's sport put him outside the normal run of things. Andrew Sabisky is his name, and he works for Number 10, having been appointed after Dominic Cummings put out a job description that we talked about. Um, the 27-year-old Sabisky wrote on Cummings' website in 2014, in order to get around unplanned pregnancies in the UK, there should be legal enforcement of long-term contraception. In another post that was circulated on Twitter, Sabisky claimed black Americans had a lower average IQ than white people and were more likely to have an intellectual disability. He also, I think said that women's sport was basically the 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 oh, paralymp yeah. paralymp yeah, closer to that than the men's yes well uh, uh, let's let's say he's probably someone who whose views are not in what one might call the men's yes raising a few eyebrows to say the very least interesting that he was commenting on dominic cummings website in 2014 that's a long-term fan um, and then we've got this story about a labor mp who's being denied entry to india after le- landing at an airport in new delhi debris abraham's who chairs a parliamentary group focusing on the disputed region of Kashmir, is the person in question. She's, of course, a vocal critic, as you might imagine, of the Indian government's move to change its semi-autonomous status. And um, One of her aides says she's on a personal trip 
but that her valid visa has then been rejected. Right. Well, let's move on to Brexit. Oh, we haven't covered that for a while on this <laughs> programme. Um, now, France has been warning Britain to expect a bruising battle with the EU in post-Brexit trade negotiations. The French Foreign Minister, Jean-Yves Le Drian, predicted the two sides would rip each other apart as they strove for advantage. He also said it'd be tough for the UK to achieve its aim of agreeing a free trade deal by the end of the year. The UK government, on the other hand, said it wanted a deal based on friendly cooperation between sovereign equals. Uh, That comes as David Frost, the UK's chief Brexit negotiator, sets out Britain's goals for the trade talks in Brussels today. The key line is that, Roger, that the UK doesn't want special treatment. It wants to be treated similarly to countries that have already agreed trade deals with the EU. Let's dig into this. Let's bring in Charles Grant. He's the director of the Centre for European Reform. Charles, let's run with that argument that it's unreasonable that the UK is being offered more stringent terms on things like state aid, tax and standards than countries like Korea, Japan and China. Do you think that's a valid starting point for the UK to be making those claims? I think it's valid for the UK to say that it's getting rougher treatment than some of the other countries have received. That's a fair point from the UK, because the EU has has a reason for doing so, which is that it doesn't mind if Canada, which is a long way away and doesn't trade very much with the EU, starts flashing its standards and cutting its regulations to get a competitive advantage over the EU, because Canada isn't really seen as a threat. But the UK is just off the edge of the continent of Europe, and is seen as a competitive threat, and already is so closely entwined with the EU economy. If Britain sits there off the edge of Europe and starts cutting its social environmental regulations, starts pumping state aid to subsidise companies to get an advantage over EU companies, it'll grab a lot of investment from the EU. So there is a, there's a kind of defensive fear in the EU that we will become what they call Singapore on Thames, kind of Asian tiger off the edge of Europe. That's why they are being tougher on the British than they are on Canada. And then I don't think they... Uh, I think they mean it. They really want to, the British to commit to align with EU rules in areas that affect the costs of production. And Charles, I mean, isn't there an element uh, of uh, of absurdity in this? If us appealing, saying it's not fair about something, I mean, nothing in this is ever going to be fair. It's all going to come down to perceived advantage and what Britain has to trade off against what the EU doesn't want to give away. Yes, I mean, uh, I, 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 despite the, the rhetoric, to, which well, I guess we'll hear from David Frost this evening, I haven't seen his speech yet, and, and what Mr. Ladrion said at the weekend, I mean, it's certainly possible we will get some sort of deal at the end of the year. But what is possible, if all goes well, is a simple free trade agreement, if they can somehow fudge the issue of these, these level playful provisions in the alignment with the EU rules, a simple free trade agreement, an agreement on fish, and possibly something on security, leaving most of the negotiations to be done in in, few, in the coming years. A lot of stuff on uh, foreign defence policy and research and education and so on will have to be left, and transport will have to be left for later. That is if all goes well. And uh, what might happen is that both sides probably want a deal, but I think each side is prepared to go to the brink. Each side is prepared to say, well, we're going to walk away if the other side doesn't give us what we want. And the EU thinks and believes it's in a stronger position than the UK because it, it depends much less on trade with the UK than the UK depends on trade with it. So all of this chess beating then, these comments from David Frost they're expecting to hear later on, the French foreign minister saying the two sides are going to rip each other apart. Is this all talk? Is it ultimately going to come down to something much more sensible when the clock starts to run out? Well, last week I spoke to some of the EU's negotiators in this uh, this game, and they certainly think a deal is quite plausible to imagine. Because they think that Boris Johnson will actually probably be more willing to compromise than he appears at the moment. This is what happened last year with the negotiation with the withdrawal agreement. I mean, Boris 
Johnson completely changed his mind on the Irish border and accepted controls across the Irish Sea in order to avoid controls between Northern Ireland and the Republic. So he may he may change his mind again and make it easier to get a deal. But that's not guaranteed, of course. And uh, I think certainly uh, Boris Johnson is indicating that he's prepared to walk away from these talks. And if he did walk away from these talks, it wouldn't actually be necessarily such a huge change from achieving a, a basic Canada-style free trade again, because there's going to be there's going to be friction at the borders anyway. There's going to be controls on goods because we're leaving the single market and the customs union. But the only difference is there'll be more tariffs if we if we go to World Trade Organization terms than if we do a Canada-style FTA. So the degree of extra pain inflicted by walking away isn't, isn't so great as some people imagine. It's going to be painful, whatever happens. And that pain has to be alleviated, at least in the minds of a lot of Brexiteers, by uh, having deals elsewhere, particularly with the United States. And yet, Charles, what we've heard in the last few weeks has been pushing America further away, whether it's to do with Huawei, whether it's to do with food standards. Again, is that just theatre or underneath all this, is there actually less prospect now of a deal with the US? I think the only kind of deal we're going to see with the US in the near future is is one that is more symbolic than substantive. I mean, you can have a bit of paper saying a deal with a few bits and pieces on it, but uh, my understanding is that the US is not willing or able to negotiate a sort of deep and, and comprehensive free trade agreement any time. They've got a presidential election coming up, which means everything stopped. But also, the British are not willing to give them what they want on aligning with U.S. rules on food and plant and animal standards, uh, and also allowing allowing cheaper drugs into the National Health Service. Uh, so I think I think given, given that the areas where the U.S. really wants Britain to give it things, Britain even Boris Johnson isn't really willing to give them very much. I don't think the U.S. is going to be so interested in a, a real substantive free trade agreement. There may be something symbolic that can be called a free free, free trade agreement. Uh, and Charles, the Sunday Times is reporting that Frost's lecture today is very much a reaction to Theresa May's strategy of secrecy. And he wants to be much more open and he sees that secrecy as one of the reasons that she failed to get a deal with Brussels. What else do you think that this team, this government can learn from the first phase of the negotiations in order to achieve success? Well, of course, she did get a deal in the end. It couldn't get it through Parliament. Um, I think the, the biggest lesson I've, I've learned from watching these negotiations over the last nearly four years, is that if the, the British government needs to be united and to know what it wants. Theresa May had two problems. She didn't know what she wanted from Brexit when she activated the Article 50 process. And therefore, if you don't know what you want, you're at a disadvantage. And the, the clock was ticking and time was running out. And she, she took two years to produce the plan, the so-called Chequers plan, for, the, for Brexit which had its good points and its less good points. And the reason why she couldn't produce a plan quickly was because her party was so divided. Now, in one sense, Boris Johnson is in a better place than, he, than she was because he's got a fairly united party more or less behind him in most respects on Brexit. So it would be easier for him to, to keep the party united, which puts him in a stronger position vis-a-vis his partners. Because Theresa May used to say one thing, then her minister David Davis would say another, and her official Ollie Roberts might say a third thing. So... I think a united government that knows what it wants is, is the main lesson to learn from the previous talks. What about a united Europe, though? Because we've been told up to this point that despite the fact they've got so many sovereign governments to get together, they are all solidly behind the negotiator. Is that still true, do you think? Or is, there, is it beginning to, 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 to fracture a bit, that solidity? Well, uh, at the moment, my, my reading of it is they are pretty much united. And there are differences of emphasis. I mean, the, for example, between the French and the Germans, the French take a much tougher line. The French want people to see that Brexit hurts, to, to dissuade anybody else from voting for Eurosceptic parties like Marine Le Pen or 
in France or Mr. Salvini in Italy. So the French take a more tough view, while the Germans, I think, worry more about the consequences of an acrimonious Brexit. The Germans worry that the West will be weaker vis-a-vis Russia and America if Britain gets into a bun fight with its EU partners. So there are differences of emphasis. But on the substance, the French and the Germans and all the others are more or less agreed on what they want. And they are going to be tough on these issues we were talking about a moment ago, the so-called level playing field provisions, the fact that they want the British to align with EU rules on social issues, environmental issues, state aid and taxation. And, and very quickly, back on the UK side, do you think the, the, the more unified approach of actually wanting Brexit is going to carry this government further than the previous one? Well, I think, I think it, it does definitely help that the government is, is the government. There's no resistance to what Boris Johnson wants to do within the government. He, there might have been some of the Treasury, and that's been quelled in the last few days. So if Boris wants to go for a hard Brexit, he can. If he wants to walk away from the talks, he can. If he wants to compromise, like he did last year on the withdrawal agreement, and give in to EU on some of its demands, he can do so. Sure. He'll, he'll take the rap later, but he, he's in the, he, he's really can do what he wants, as yeah. I can see in these talks. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.